0: Thanks so much for joining us for this week's episode of When I Grew Up. On today's episode, I have um, Bill Wong with me, and he is somebody I actually met through a mutual friend. But Bill is here to tell me today what it's like to be an occupational therapist. Hey, Bill, how are you?
1: I'm good. Thank you. How about you?
0: I'm great. Thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome. Um, so before we start, um, I, you know, we have. You, actually, this is kind of unique. Did you so I'm about 40 episodes into my podcast and you're the first person that I actually like don't know personally. So, it's kind of exciting for me cuz I I truly know nothing about you and I I get to ask you the questions that I ask everybody else, but I kind of already know the answers cuz I know them. Do you get what I
1: mean? <laughs> yeah, I definitely know what you mean.
0: Um okay, so before we start, do you are Are you Dr. Bill? What do you prefer to be called?
1: So typically in a classroom, I prefer to be called Dr. Wong. The reason why is because I have received my post-professional clinical doctorate from USC in 2013. So I definitely have earned my doctorate. And speaking of that, so in occupational therapy, we definitely have a few kinds of doctorates. So, uh one that is in recent years that has been going around i guess because like a lot of programs they are preparing themselves for possible mandate for the point of entry to be doctorates so there are people who are entering the profession com- i mean coming out of from graduate school with their doctorates but their doctorates are the entry level doctorates mm-hmm. and then there are people like me who may go to a post-professional doctorate program. So is a master's and then it's optional. They may work for a while and then they will go back to school and their doctorate will be a post-professional. And then of course you also get the traditional PhD. So therefore we have three types of doctorates, at least in the U.S.
0: I see, okay, so where do you fall in?
1: So as I mentioned before, I was, I got my post-professional doctorate from USC in 2013.
0: Well, then Dr. Bill, it is because you earned that title. And <laughs> I mean, I know that you, um, I how long is that doctorate program?
1: Okay. So I guess this is also a very, it depends kind of question. Okay. So like for people who are going for where is is the entry-level doctorate or the post-professional doctorate, commonly full-time would be one year on top of the master's, which is about two, two and a half years.
0: Okay, okay.
1: But at USC, because our program is very user-friendly per se, Uh so we do allow people to attend the program part-time. In fact, I think one... uh, some person I know, I think she is one of the fewer coordinators at USC. The time when she started and she ended, it was more than 10 years apart.
0: Oh, wow. But she did finish.
1: She did finish. I guess <laughs> maybe because of family, you know, with family, yeah, a lot of people yeah. are family. life happens. Yeah. So therefore, it's like some people just take their time to finish their doctorate. Yeah. Do you but, get what I mean- I'm saying?
0: a doctorate is a doctorate, you know, mm-hmm. uh, no matter how long it takes. Well, well, that's awesome. And congratulations for finishing yours, because I know that it must be a lot of work. And I'm excited to learn more about that program in itself today. Um, so um, can you tell me what it is that an occupational therapist does?
1: Hmm, that's a good question. So <laughs> it depends on the setting, of course. Again, it's the all depends setting. Uh-huh. So, right now, I work in a geriatric setting. And of course, I just want to preface that as like we also have occupational therapy assistants as well. So, I think that it is important to sort of break the two apart. Mm. I think uh, so. There are things that I do in common with occupational therapy assistants, but then there are also some roles that only an occupational therapist can do mm-hmm. so some things that I do in common with occupational therapy assistants is like well we work on like how they get dressed how, maybe how people get dressed how people help people go to the toilet sometimes even like how to feed themselves mm-hmm. which can be like a lot of people to take for granted but then like let's say you suffer a stroke or maybe like a some kind of other you have a fall or something you know it's like maybe it affects your function with your dominant hand then how do you know what do you do right you might have to learn how to eat feed yourself with your non-dominant hand and that can be a process itself mm-hmm. the thing that sort of separate me apart in my setting is that I also do uh, initial evaluations with the patients so what I mean by that is like when they first come in to the nursing home facility, and they definitely have to be evaluated so that we can know where they are at the present, like, and then set some goals based on where they want to be in the future or where I think they should be in the future, so to speak. And then let's see what else. And then also like another thing is like, let's say in my setting, some people they may, like, in the nursing home, the nurse may say, it's like, hey, this patient has declined so much.
0: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: maybe you want to check them out to see if they need they can benefit from therapy. Mm, okay. So we'll also do some clinical evaluations based on that because, like, maybe, indeed, these patients, they may have declined a lot from a functional standpoint. And they definitely need the therapy services to get back to where they're supposed to be for the most part. That's, I would say, that's probably... And then we also do uh, a lot of weekly reports, which a lot I know you may have heard a lot of people say, is like, oh, once you become a therapist, you may have to handle a lot of paperwork. So by paperwork, it's not only our daily documentation, but also like weekly progress notes and also discharge summaries. So we have to do a lot of that. Assistance, depending on the state, some states, assistants won't be allowed to complete the weekly progress notes in my setting.
0: Okay. I see. Um, so, you know, for people that aren't familiar with your career and what, what it is that you do, uh, someone like me, um, so what, So, at what point would somebody see an occupational therapist? Like what, what kind of things would happen or what kind of people see? Because for me, I guess I'm a little bit confused in the sense of like it, how is it different than like physical therapy? If it is like kind of a rehabilitation process,
1: good question. So I think to touched your first question, it can be anywhere from zero to hundred plus. Mm-hmm. The reason why it says zero because there are occupational therapists who are occupational therapy practitioners who work in the NICU. So Mm -hmm. that is like the neonatal intensive care unit, right? So technically that would be the reason why I said zero because there will be people, there'll be some babies who need some services like this. And the NICU, the occupational therapists who are working in it is definitely a very specialized field. And then I talk about hundred plus because sometimes I think there was one time recently I evaluated a patient who was 103 years old. (laughs) So from an A-frame standpoint, it's basically the whole lifespan, so to speak. And then what we do, uh, so what we do is we target function, so to speak. Yeah, so function, that's why I mentioned earlier about like feeding yourself, getting dressed, clean up up after yourself, those kind of stuff. Those might seem very ordinary tasks, but for people who might have let's say in my setting, they fall at their home and stuff. There's like, hey, they may lose the balance or they, that might affect their abilities to perform some of the common daily tasks that we've taken for granted.
0: Okay, I see. Okay. Um, next question is, um, oh, can you tell us where it is that you live?
1: I live in the East Los Angeles area in Monterey Park, California. So there's a neighborhood where there are a lot of, Asian Americans in the neighborhood.
0: So, um, do you li- do you work in kind of a you said you work in a geriatric setting? Are there a lot of Asian Americans that are under your care?
1: Uh, there definitely are some, you okay. know, especially around my neck of the woods. But given that, you know, we our caseload can vary from time to time. So, there I know that there is one nursing home near my house maybe like a couple miles away and pretty much all the patients are Chinese Americans.
0: I see. Okay. And um, I, Oh, so sorry, Dr. Bill, I actually did some Facebook stalking before I met you. And I saw that you, you're not only an occupational therapist and you're saying that you um, do some teaching as well. Could you elaborate on that a little bit?
1: So I will elaborate on that. That's not a problem. So Two years ago, I started teaching at Stanbridge University, so as an adjunct faculty. The reason why I did that was because, like, you know, I like to teach, but I wasn't sure if I wanted to pursue it through time or not. So mm-hmm. that was why I did an adjunct for the Occupational Therapy assistant Program in its Los Angeles campus. Because Stanbridge, we have two campuses. We have one in Los Angeles and then we have one in Orange County. So, being that it's close to home, I thought it was a good opportunity to sort of get myself immersed whether I like to teach or not. Oh, wow. And then, so yeah. So, basically, first year I taught uh, like physical dysfunction lab. So, basically, I'm teaching students basics to sort of prepare themselves for the first clinicals for the occupational therapy assistant students and then last year i transitioned over to the master's program and i've been teaching the leadership and management course for the students and leadership and management is people may think it's like oh there's nothing much why is it taught in the program you know but i believe that's like Everybody can be a leader, mm-hmm. so whether in ways big or small. So, I also think that in these kind of classes, especially considering that, I think it's like I'm teaching the future generations of tomorrow in terms of future generations of OT practitioners. So, therefore, that was why I think it's like leadership is actually very important because I know in my kind of setting sometimes it's like who knows maybe somebody is a year out in graduating and all of a sudden it's like oh by the way you just got promoted to be the director of rehab of a skill nursing facility you know mm-hmm. or maybe a few years later it's like hey you are running your own pediatric clinic so to speak mm-hmm. so you definitely need those kind of skills as a foundation to prepare for your future
0: that is amazing yeah no I definitely agree that's super important for I feel like any career, so that's awesome. So, how have you been enjoying it? How you do you like teaching yet?
1: Actually, I think I do. I think the course that I'm given, I think, is played to my strengths more because I think for me, I'm more passionate to talk about leadership. So it's like I think a course like this, it actually fits me very well. And I realized this time too is like I have more room to exercise my creativity to sort of create content that are relevant to the student, but also is more fun and more, have more application based for the students at the same time.
0: That's awesome. So I don't know if you've thought about this yet, but so for you in trying to go the teaching route, do you desire to like be a professor of OT students one day?
1: I think technically I already am. I'm, I'm already I guess, there.
0: I guess. Technically I'm already there.
1: But to transition full-time, I think definitely waiting for the right time to see if I earn the promotion.
0: Right. <laughs> um, thank you for your honesty on that question. <laughs> um, so can you take me back to the very beginning, Dr. Bill, like of like, when you decided um, you wanted to take this OT occupational therapist route and did you always know that you wanted to do this?
1: Oh I would say the answer is actually surprise it's surprised, surprise to a lot of people is the answer was no and I also mentioned that I think I told a lot of people that it took me six months to actually love OT once I got into the MSOT program that I was in at USC so it took me six months which was about two terms actually wow. I know a lot of people find it surprising but for me I think it's not very surprising because the background I had before occupational therapy school was statistics wow. so therefore the transition from very a field that is very black and white to something that is very multi-dimensional And then also from a field that's very concrete to something that's very abstract, definitely it was a transition in terms of mindset to actually get to love the field.
0: Sure. So,
1: yeah, yeah, right?
0: So, like you, so you studied statistics before studying occupational therapy? That's correct. Okay. So, um, you did that in undergrad, I'm assuming? That's correct. Okay. So what in the world made you change to occupational therapy?
1: <laughs> That's a good question. Because like, I think it's like, I will say a lot of time, I will say it's my parents had a lot to do with it. Because like, I was unemployed for a year, a year and a half. Mm-hmm. And then I think about a year into my un- unemployment, my parents have told me, it's like, Bill, you got to do something, you know? You can't be unemployed like this or you're making no money, you know, mm-hmm. it's either you keep on looking, get a job, or you gotta go to school. <laughs> so we looked at a few programs first. And OT actually was not my first choice. It was actually, I would say, probably my third choice at that time. So the reason why I said that was because we found out business school first, but I mean, business school first because we had the least amount of prerequisites to make up compared mm-hmm. to the rest that we were considering. But then when I took to GMAT, I don't know if you have anybody from business school or from, from business, they probably, you probably may know what GMAT is already. If not, it is like, sort of like a GRE for business school. Okay. So I took the exam, but when I found out my score, I was like, well, probably I will not be going to a very good business school. Oh no. So <laughs> yeah, so I was like, okay, that's out the window. And then I was thinking about going to seminary seminary because, well, at the time, my parents and I, we were pretty involved in the church. And we were thinking, like, we know some of the so-called preacher's kids, so to speak. And those kids, those preacher's kids, they either were fresh out of seminary or they were in seminary and they were about my age. But then we look at the job prospects. I was like, well, probably won't get a good return of my investment. (laughs) And then, uh, so then we thought about OT. And ironically, and this is like right now, this is not the advice I would like to get people when they're applying for OT school per se. The reason why I said that was because we only had sites for one school, which was USC. Mm -hmm. So we actually decided like, hey, this is a solid job, good pay. And to find out more, we actually, my my mom and I, we actually went to the orientation for USC for OT students. It was a two-hour long orientation, but because my mom and I, we got lost, so we actually came to the orientation one hour late.
0: Oh, no. But
1: yeah, we did. But the part I heard during the orientation was like, oh, we need some more researchers in OT. And at that time, my mom was like, oh, it's like, hey, this is perfect for you. This is probably your niche, you know? It's like, you have a stats background, maybe that's your niche in terms of using your stats knowledge to combine with what you could learn in OT. Because I would say for me growing up, since you talk about growing up, right? So growing up is like, my rhythmic skills were very strong, Mm. but then I couldn't find a science to sort of marry my passion together.
0: Yeah, yeah. So
1: that was when my parents thought like, hey, maybe you can be a researcher in OT, you know? And I think when I applied for OT school in 2008 and I submitted my GRE score, so one thing that stood out in my application was that my quantitative score was perfect for GRE. So I think a lot of people who were in admissions committee, they probably thought that I'll be the next researcher for OT because of the fact that I have a very strong math background. I see. Turned out, it didn't exactly turn out that way, even though I'm coming towards that now in a very roundabout way. But... It's like, definitely, I was not, I'm not the occupational therapist that people was expecting when they first admitted me to OT school.
0: I see. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's so interesting that kind of out of your own um, desire just to find a career that would work for you, you kind of landed on occupational therapy, yet so it took you six months but did you finally come around to enjoy it and appreciate the career itself
1: yeah I think I do I think that's why I've been going around to different conferences across the globe definitely want to do the best I can to not only like see the world but also try to learn as much about occupational therapy and of course, are related to the occupational science as much as I can. Mm -hmm. And I believe, speaking of that, you know, I believe those kind of experiences, especially traveling internationally to acquire such knowledge, actually, it really came into play in my classroom because a lot of students, they were like, wow, you have been to international conferences in your career and you're not even 10 years in yet, you know? It's like, Mm -hmm. that is amazing that you got to do that, you know? It's Mm -hmm. like, I we want to hear your story about getting involved in these kind of things.
0: Yeah, so what is that? I don't, you know, I don't really know what that means and what that means as an occupational therapist, you going to international conferences. What does that mean? Like
1: so for me it's just like I like to share my knowledge because autism is my bread and butter you know so I was thinking it was like hey I want to even though I know this sounds very strange because here I am working in a geriatric nursing home setting but then when I go around conferences I share my knowledge and my expertise about autism I know that if people were to look at me on paper they were like how you know shouldn't you share about like fall prevention shouldn't you share stuff that you might know about alzheimer's dementia like what's going on you know Mm. so but then it's like well autism is very near and dear to me so that's the reason why i chose to share that whenever i could especially considering that especially when I did my doctoral capstone. So my doctoral capstone was actually a course on autism. And I hear a lot of people from the OT profession, they've been telling me that like, hey, your work, if you keep on building on it, it can have a lot of value. It's like no matter where you go in the world, it can have a lot of value because like a lot of people in terms of autism, people often share like, their accounts or the perspective or the knowledge based on their clinical experiences. But then for you, it's like, hey, you know, it's like on one hand, you are a clinician, just like the rest of us. But then it's like you also have the lived experiences piece that the rest of us, most of us, obviously the most of us don't have, you know? Mm-hmm. So therefore it's like, hey, what you share and what you do, you should still develop that knowledge and experience and expertise. Because, like, that is gonna carry you for a long time in your career.
0: Mm, I see, I see. So, um, what is it that you wrote about in your, your, sorry, what did you call it?
1: Uh, So, I guess you could say a dissertation, even though. Oh, yeah, your dissertation, I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah, so basically, as for my, OTD or the clinical doctor degree so I chose to develop a course on autism so to speak so I do not really teach that but I use that as a foundation for many of my conference presentations that I've done afterwards so therefore it's like even though I developed a capstone or dissertation even it just well I guess it's like somehow it works out it's like I use bits and pieces of it over time, if you if you can call it that right.
0: <laughs> okay, so I think, Doctor Bill, I'm not really understanding uh, what it is that you're saying because I think something is being lost in my knowledge of occupational therapy and what it is that you're saying. So, like you're saying that um, you have an expertise in autism occupational therapy, and or you have um, like no- knowledge that other people can't really share about, or
1: oh, so I guess it's the lived experiences. So let okay. me define lived experiences. So lived experiences is somebody have, who actually has personal experiences with a disability. Okay. So therefore, I sort of tie in in terms of that was uh, that was actually what my dissertation was on, and so sort of like a course that was based on my personal experiences with the disability on top of what's out there in terms of autism literature. So it sort of blended those two together to put together as a course.
0: I see. Okay. What is your experience with this, this disability?
1: Well, the fact that I live with it every day, I think that it is, that is, that is, I think that counts, right?
0: <laughs> Wait, are you saying you're on the spectrum of autism? That's correct. Oh my gosh. You know, I would never know. <laughs> I would never know that you live with this disability because you are so articulate. And I think a lot of um, my my experience with autism is not at this high level. And so yes, I find it Yes, and I think extremely... also
1: a lot of people, on. I think even like people in my own professional community, if they have seen what I've been doing, a lot of people were like, "What the heck? Why is? How can Bill do this? How can Bill do that?" It's like some of the things I do is almost like, "Dude, this is so demanding for him," yet he's pulling it off.
0: That's amazing. That really is amazing. You've accomplished so much. Um, at with a. Yeah, with a disability. And I had no idea. So thank you for sharing that part of your life with me. Um, So Dr. Bill, then, then, um, could you kind of share with me your experience then? Like how, how has that been personally for you to work with people that um, have disabilities and need functional help, but you also being able to relate to them?
1: Actually, I'm going to go to the academia round, because now it's like, definitely, I'm probably more in tune in terms of students, of their needs. I think it's like, for some students, definitely, I'm empathetic, because like, hey, you know what, if they tell me, it's like, hey, I have a disability, you know, so I was like, hey, I have one too. So Mm -hmm. it's like, definitely, I think I'm more empathetic in the field as a clinical instructor. Because like, hey, you know what, if you tell me up front, before your first day or on your first day, it's like, will problem solve to help you get you to where you want, where you should be?
0: Yes, yes. That's awesome. That's really amazing. I feel like for me, you know, I'm telling people, you know, when you grow up, you should be this or that, or you should discover and learn more about a specific career. Um, but also, I I love sharing people's stories. And I just feel honored that you would be able to share yours in this capacity today with me. So thank you so much once again. Um,
1: yeah, I think you told me earlier, right? You told me earlier in the very beginning, it's like, well, you did 40 episodes of people that you know yeah this is the first time you are doing with somebody that you don't know yeah. so therefore you really have to adjust on the fly based on what my responses are yeah
0: <laughs> how am i doing am i doing okay doing <laughs> okay well okay so um going back to your career in itself so um can you tell people that are maybe thinking about occupational therapy what it's a little bit like um on the field, you know, like working day to day with people that have um disabilities or um need therapy or rehab with their functioning? Like how like what is it like? Like are they is it really hands-on or Definitely
1: very hands-on, actually. Definitely Mm -hmm. very hands-on because a lot of stuff that we might be working on, like for example, if they need help to get to the bathroom or they need help getting dressed, sometimes we might have to provide some kind of physical assistance. Of course, that depends on how well they do, of course. Or sometimes it's very hands-on because like if we're working on uh, balance training or transfers, so we definitely work on those, like transfer from like a bed to a wheelchair or the wheelchair to the toilet, definitely very hands-on because safety is number one, especially given this geriatric setting. We, one of the rules that we have to go by in the geriatric setting is we have to assume everybody is a fall risk.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes.
1: So yes. therefore, hands-on is definitely is a must. And then of course, on the, best, on the opposite side of the spectrum, you know, there are people who are Totally dependent, they're bedridden, and they may like their joints, may be very stiff. So it also be hands on as well because of the fact that we may have to do some stretching and some major motion exercises. So, therefore, it's very hands on. (laughs) I see. So to say.
0: Yes, yes. So do you learn all of those tools and how to work with patients and things like that when you are in school?
1: Mm, we definitely get a lot of foundations of it because so uh, I would say this. So when you are in an occupational therapy program or an occupational therapy assistance program, they are training you as a generalist. So, definitely, you have some foundational knowledge of each setting that you might go into. Okay. And then, of course, when you take your continuing education courses after your career, that's when you sort of develop your specialty, so to speak.
0: I see. And so, um, how did you come about your specialty?
1: Mm, how did I come up yeah. so with my specialty? So, I think my case is more the unique case because of the fact that. I live of autism, so to speak. So mm-hmm. therefore, I actually do a lot of literature review because I submit a lot to conferences and part of the process of submitting conferences is to ensure I have a lot of up-to-date knowledge of what's going on in research mm. and autism literature in terms of peer review journals. So therefore, it's like... As I'm learning more about, from a literature standpoint, what literature are saying and going towards, that sort of actually helped helps my knowledge base. And then I sort of integrate that, like, hey, did, like, for example, like, does this apply to me or does this not apply to me? So basically it's like, uh, read the literature and then sort of like, hmm, do I agree what the literature is saying? If I agree, I kind was of like, okay, you know what? I'm going to present something using my combined perspective. But if I don't agree, I might say, you know what? I may have to present on something that I do not agree with the literature. I you know, see. so basically it's like I do a lot of peer review, so to speak. That actually has helped me a lot.
0: Okay. So since you are more on the research side of occupational therapy, um, like what is that what does that mean so like you know what are you researching are they are you researching like different techniques or like I don't understand yeah can you explain more about that
1: oh so actually I was let me backtrack a little bit okay okay (laughs) so I think for me as so I think as part of the yeah I think one question that you don't ask but I think it's very helpful to know is like so for us it's like So when we get out of school, we are generalists, as I mentioned before. Mm -hmm. But as part of the requirements of keeping our licenses, we definitely need to get continuing educational courses to continue our professional development. And then part of of the keeping of the licensure, we actually have to take courses that are relevant to the areas that we are practicing in so to speak. So my case is a little bit different than say your traditional OT practitioner because so I definitely take my share of continuing education courses related to geriatrics, related to neuroscience. So I had to take that because that's what my population, my clinical populations are. So the autism stuff, I actually study on my own. I, I actually do some uh reading uh peer review articles on my own so that i can have some up to date knowledge so to speak
0: okay i see i understand now <laughs> um so can you talk a bit a little bit about the licensure that you were talking about like so after you graduate occupational therapy school um you have to get licensing and certification i'm assuming like you mentioned and now is that like a very like is that only one test and you get licensed or how does that work?
1: So definitely it's like, definitely as part of the requirement is, of course, complete the coursework, you pass it. And then also the clinicals, you pass them, then you can take the exam. So it's one exam. But then is like, at least in California, is we renew our license every two years. And then like a lot of people, especially the job is like, they're also required to renew the national registration. okay every. But so in terms of our state renewals, it depends on the state of what the requirements are because each state is very different.
0: I see. Okay. Well, that's good to know. Um, so I guess you know I'm in Atlanta, Georgia, so it would probably be different than it is in California, I'm assuming correct. <laughs> okay. Um, well, okay. So after you get your licensing, um, as far as like job hunting goes, you know, where do occupational therapists like, do they apply at rehabs or hospitals or what, what does that look like?
1: So that's a good question. So I would say it's like, in terms of where to look for jobs. Right. So sometimes maybe it's from the department alumni page, mm. for example. Or it could be through our state association boards. And of course, indeed is also very popular as well. <laughs>
0: um, so it's just as simple as that, really. Just like it's it's usually just a posting and people just look for it.
1: Yeah, correct. Yeah. Oh,
0: awesome. That's good. That's good to know, I feel like. Um so as an occupational therapist, for me, I would feel like um, okay, say I'm just putting myself in a patient's shoes right? Learning and like relearning a function or learning a function. And I feel like I would grow impatient with myself sometimes. Now, what is the patient to um, therapist relationship like when it comes to those types of frustrations?
1: Oh, yeah, definitely can happen. I think it's not uncommon, you know? (laughs) Uh uh It can happen because, like, hey, I want progress. I want progress. But sometimes I educate them. It's like, hey, you know, like, your mind is, like, you want to progress. But then it's like, hey, your body's not listening to you, you know?
0: Mm, Or
1: maybe, like, or, yeah, your body's just not listening to you, you know? Or sometimes of some kind of dysfunction. It can affect your ability you know so to speak to actually progress so to speak like Mm -hmm. for example going back to I would say like pediatrics for example right I think a common one would be like getting kids to ride a bike right so definitely it can be very frustrating let's Mm -hmm. say after the first few less first few treatment sessions and like oh you got taught some basics to ride a bike and then also and then it's like after a few sessions you still have not mastered it mm. it definitely can be very frustrating
0: right so how sometimes. do you handle that with patients
1: i think definitely is a lot of reassurance, you know and sometimes it's like you're doing great or you're doing fine or sometimes maybe we can sort of find out and i mean find out it's like maybe trying to make some adjustment here adjustment mm. there to hopefully get you to where you want to be but then again it's very case dependent you
0: know right right absolutely yes um so uh Dr. Bill what what do you enjoy most about being an occupational therapist
1: hmm that's a good question so I think definitely seeing patients progress and then getting in my setting would be like rather than staying back at the nursing home so to speak it's like if they can have a good discharge to go back home mm. or in our case it could be like even going to like an assisted living facility or an independent living facility that's still a win because that is considered as a lower level of care mm.
0: okay. so
1: to speak so the patients they are successful discharged to so a lower level of care that is considered definitely considered as a successful discharge.
0: So that's what you enjoy most—just seeing your your patients like get where they want to be.
1: Yeah, of course, definitely.
0: Yeah, of course, that's awesome. And then, okay, now I have to ask you. You know, we talked about what you enjoy the most, but what did, do you what do you think is uh, the the thing you like least about your job?
1: <laughs> mm, I would say it definitely is along with a lot of occupational therapists paperwork.
0: Oh. Okay, like the administrative part of things.
1: Uh, won't. Well, let's see. I won't say it's administrative part of things because administrative part, it could be director of rehab. Uh-huh. So that's administrative. I think it's like keeping up, again, just like keeping up to date about patient progress, you know. It's like oh, okay, I to, okay. pres- to give the, to, I wish, let's see. Yeah, to write the reports on time in a timely manner, you know? It's Mm. not like, oh, this report is due today and then it's completed three weeks later. Right, right. You know? (laughs) That is definitely not that is definitely not something looking forward to. So like if I see like, oh I have like 30 reports that are due, I was like, oh my God, are you kidding me? (laughs) That's
0: crazy. Yeah. I mean, and you have so many patients to keep up with too, I'm sure.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. So it's almost like you have to treat the patients and then you have to do the paperwork to play catch up. Sometimes, at least in my building, sometimes that's not easy because like, let's say you have like a 200 bed facility or more, and it could be like 50, 60, 70, 80 patients on caseload. And then sometimes you're the only one, only occupational therapist on staff. So therefore it's like, hey, you may have to do 10 reports a day. oh my god that's a nightmare
0: yeah that sounds like a nightmare i, I don't think i would like enjoy that part either
1: <laughs> oh yeah and then of course now i was i mean like another part i'll say now is the teaching part too so teaching part you may think it's just teach but then it's like uh you sometimes have to great papers too and you have definitely i know that students are very anxious in the classroom environment they definitely sure. want to know where they stand so i sort of gave myself like a when we turn around with all the papers and then it's like with 32 papers, <gasps>
0: 32
1: papers to grade.
0: That's
1: crazy. Yeah. So yeah, that takes, that would take me at least eight hours to grade everything. Oh, man. So that is also, that can also be a nightmare in itself, you know?
0: Yes, absolutely. I can't relate because I've never been there, but I can imagine it that w- I would not enjoy that at all. <laughs> um. So um. You know, you've done a lot of schooling to be an occupational therapist. And I'm curious that in that time, did you face like any maybe like personal obstacles or personal challenges? Was there ever a time where you like you were kind of like, maybe this is not what I want to do, but you felt like it was too late? Do you understand what I'm asking you?
1: I definitely understand. I think that was what we talked about earlier about my life experiences Mm. because I found that out 10 years ago. So that was actually in between my first and second year of occupational therapy school.
0: You found what out?
1: So being autistic, actually.
0: Really? Please tell me this story. You have to tell me. Like how How did this come about? So...
1: Uh definitely when I was a student, I was struggling with my clinicals, but I did not know why. Uh-huh. I did not know why. So a lot of comments that I received was like poor eye contact, bad at reading social cues, time management was awful, you know, it was like all these kind of things. And then I did not know why I was struggling like crazy for pretty much a year into graduate school and then when I walked away from my, one of my clinicals and uh, by the way it's like when I mentioned about walking away from a clinical depending on the program that means that I failed the clinical
0: I see okay
1: so therefore I was like knowing that I could not fail anymore so I told my parents was like hey you know what I need to find out why I was struggling. And it has been a year now that I was struggling like this. So my parents was like, my parents were like, hey, you got nothing to lose right now because like, hey, you walked, you just walked out of clinical, you failed it. Like baby is like, you need to find out why. So they actually did, unlike a lot of Asian parents in this instance is like, hey, you know what? We want to be supportive of you to find out why first, before we get mad at you. Okay. Yeah, so I did a month later, and it sort of confirmed my suspicions. And I told my parents that they actually, they were not mad. They actually felt guilty Mm. in the first place because I told them I I might have a hunch that Mm. I was earlier, but they did not listen to me. So they felt that they contribute to the failure as well.
0: Oh, well, it's definitely not a failure to me. And and if anything, I feel like your failure failure led to your success right now, definitely. Um, yeah, but
1: I'm saying it's like the failure is that in that situation is I couldn't fail anymore. So I was behind the eight balls, so to speak. So they felt that they were partly responsible for putting me in that situation.
0: I see. So you never felt this like... Growing up, like when you are younger, like in your high school or middle school years?
1: A mm, little bit, you know, the eye contact issue, I definitely was aware of it for a very long time. Mm. But the social cues part in terms of reading it, that I definitely was not aware of it.
0: I see. That's so interesting. So you you had to take a test then? I don't really know how that works.
1: Yeah, that's definitely, it's definitely a bunch of tests. So i go through like a screening and then after the screening, then actually I went for more, for, for more assessment, as they say, right? So definitely was very lucky because I had the insurance for my school. Uh-huh, so uh-huh. typically people had to wait a year for the diagnosis. For me, I was able to get it within a month. Which Why is do very they have fast. to wait
0: so long?
1: I think it's just that a lot of people they want they want to get themselves tested, and there's a lot like a long wait list. A lot oh, of times,
0: really. That's so interesting and fascinating to me. I'd feel like that's information that one would want to know right away, but <laughs> but I guess okay. So um, after you found this out about yourself. Um, did that kind of shift the way you studied, the way you went about clinicals, the way you worked and things like that?
1: Well, that's a good question. I think, talk about the obstacle piece, right? So yes. when I found out, knowing that I had nothing much to lose, I disclosed lost my faculty. And I think for, yeah, I mean, like they were very supportive from, uh, I always say this, from a support standpoint. But there was one thing that they couldn't provide me, which was like introducing me to someone in OT who also is autistic, so to speak. Mm. Yeah, it took me a year to, actually met it on Facebook one day and then there was a caregiver from the UK. She commented on my status and say, hey, uh, talk to this guy from the UK, you know, he's autistic and he is, License in the UK for three years now. You may want to reach out to him to see if he can give you some suggestions on how to navigate through your work,
0: wow. or the clinical,
1: so to speak. Yeah. So that took me a year. So that, I think that, that but then I couldn't really blame my faculty because mm-hmm. like before that time is like, mm, the autistic OT practitioners they generally were not very open about their diagnosis. So it's definitely not easy to find somebody like that.
0: Sure, yeah. So uh, were you able to reach out to this person in the UK then?
1: Yeah, I did. I did. And I think that actually talking to him actually got a lot of reassurance because like, when I found out where he was as a student, I was like, dude, I was relatively similar to him Mm. in a sense. So that actually helped in terms of like, hey, actually I was was on the right track, you know? I just might need a little more support and somebody to actually walk me through. It was like, hey, you know what? you can do this, you know? Yeah. So talking to him was like, definitely is a very good visual to say, hey, I can do this.
0: Mm, yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. I mean, that kind of support network, I feel like would be extremely important. I, and I I applaud you because, you know, I'm sure it would have been easy to just, especially without feeling the support um, system for your for your future, But then um, having to navigate it anyways, that takes some drive to do that. And I I think that's amazing for any person, for any person it does. So, um, yeah, that's that's Yeah, I
1: agree. And I think for me, it's like maybe because like when I was a student, so definitely I had some struggles before, even in undergrad. And then I sort of realized, it's like, you know what, I sort of use a sports mentality to myself through this because I was thinking like I watch a lot of baseball yeah and then like I was like dude I saw you said not this analogy for the situation I was like well some I think like if I, I sort of I guess to imagine myself like a starting pitcher so to speak so I saw thought it's like well you know it's like if I were somebody who might give up a lot of runs right or Mm -hmm. so definitely I need a very strong offense to help me in terms of winning a ball game so to speak Mm -hmm. and the ball game at this time is like you know what I want to be an occupational therapist Mm -hmm. so having a sports mentality sort of helped me because like you know what definitely want to give myself as much margin for error as possible. Yes. Definitely want to be like, hey, you know what? I want to make sure I am extra prepared, especially given at that situation, after I found my diagnosis was, I could not afford to fail. So if I were to fail, I need to go down swinging.
0: Yeah, no, that's a great analogy and a great metaphor. I feel like I can relate to that. I love sports too. And so I understand that kind of mentality. But that's awesome that you were able to give yourself that picture and go for it. And um, anyone listening today, I mean, that's my goal with this podcast too, right? For people to make goals for themselves even if it's difficult, to overcome them and just really push through. So, um, Dr. Bill, again, I just really appreciate you being here today to share your story and share, us, give us a little bit of more insight on the career of occupational therapy. Um, we are kind of um, coming to a close in our time together. But usually before we end, I ask people, um, do you have any advice for anybody that is thinking about going into the career of OT and occupational therapy, or any advice at all, just in general, that you want to share with us?
1: Oh, yeah. I think you touched on the point just when you closed, right? So I think mentorship is definitely very important. And Mm. for me, I'm very fortunate to have mentors even right now to actually help me to, at the time... That's one hand, they're supporting me. At the other hand, they're challenging me at the same time. So having a mentorship actually really helped me in terms of maximizing my potential as not only an occupational therapist, but also leader for the profession. And now, of course, I'm using the same lessons to actually mentor people who are asking me to be their mentor. You know, so I'm mentoring mm-hmm. mentees using the very same lessons that I learned from my mentors.
0: Awesome. Yeah, that's great advice. I feel like mentorship is extremely important and people that have gone before you to kind of guide you where you need to be. Um, anything else you wanted to share before we end today?
1: Hmm. Yeah, I think I'm good.
0: Okay, great. Um, thank you so much again. I really appreciate your time. Uh, Dr. Bill, if there's anybody that maybe has questions or is interested in your uh, line of work, would you be open to chatting with them at all? Sure. Awesome. So
1: my Twitter handle is at BillWongOT. I would say that's probably my most active platform right now
0: okay great so you can uh, reach out to dr bill through twitter um i will connect and if you missed that part i can connect you guys if you just dm me i can get you connected with him um thank you again dr bill thanks guys so much for listening um until next time bye